get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your love, mercy, and grace. We thank you for this opportunity to be in your presence, to gather as believers, to grow in understanding and richness of your love. Lord, open our ears, soften our hearts. Lord, let us put aside all this stuff outside of here so that we can focus on you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so this is the last night of this semester. You can laugh or you can cry or applaud. All is acceptable. Uh, we have now taken the last something 14 weeks to cover the Sermon on the Mount bit by bit, and we have now reached the end. So we are in Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 29 through, or 24 to 29. If you have the sheet in front of you, you can read along. It says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. And when the, Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. This is, uh, I love the conclusion. And to be honest, I would actually like to start here. Something about Jesus changed the way people heard the scriptures. Right? That these, these people, many of them were devout Jewish believers. They uh, followed the customs of the day. They went to temple as they should. They honored the Sabbath. They, many of them really were good people who were just trying to do what the law of Moses said. Right? They would offer their sacrifices. They would go to the festivals. They would do all these things in order to obey the law so that they could enter into the kingdom of heaven. The problem was, and as we discussed a few weeks back, is that the scribes were trying to m explain the, what the law meant, right? Many times the, the scribes and the rabbis and the Pharisees would try to do things to kind of help people understood how to, per se, not break the Sabbath. If you remember, we talked about they were, they were not allowed to walk a certain distance because had they traveled too far, that would have been considered work. They would have been able to treat the sick but not cleanse a wound because that would have been considered work. They would have been able to let out their animals to drink, but they would not be able to saddle them to go on a ride, for that would be considered work. And, and this is what the scribes were trying to do. They were trying to take the law and try to explain it in a way that everyone could understand, but all they ended up doing was adding layer upon layer of human tradition that were not at the heart of the commandments of God. And so when Jesus spoke, and when he was done, and he had broken all this down, and if I hope maybe over this Christmas break you sit and read all of 5, 6, and 7 together in one big chunk, but you're going to hear the heart of Jesus as he's 
telling them what the God, the Father, wants of them. And this brought this great astonishment. Not, he had not performed a single miracle. He had not walked on water. He had not fed the multitudes yet. So far by record, all that we know that he had done was the wedding in Canaan, where he turned the water into wine. But up until this point, all that Jesus had done was literally teach them the will and the heart of God. And, it, and it, the, the hearts of these listeners just somehow must have come alive by what they were hearing because there's, it was completely contradictory to much of what they'd been taught by the scribes. And thus, that's what the crowds were beginning to say. And they said, he taught with authority, not like the scribes. And that's actually why tonight's title is The Authority of Christ. I would really like to challenge each of us, do we respect and submit to the authority of Christ? Now, before you say yes or no, or take a deep breath, it's going to be okay. But this is what we're trying to get to. And here, here's the benefit. So going back up to verse 24. The gospel of Jesus Christ is for everyone. Everyone who hears the words. The, the, Jesus is, is very clear. In Romans 10, 17, you don't have to turn there. But it says, faith comes from hearing, hearing the words of Christ. And, and there's something in the message of Jesus that the whole world needs to hear. Uh, I was having a conversation just before we started, and, and it's a conversation I've actually had several times this week. I was really, uh, I, either God was preparing me for right now, which I always think he is, but the, I've had three conversations with three different people about salvation and eternity. Like I had people come, I had an email sent to me, said, do you believe, do you believe Jesus is the only way to heaven? Does God really condemn everyone else who does not believe? That's not a fun email to get. And so I responded back. I said, I'm going to give you my short answer. Yes. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus also said that narrow is the way to eternal life and broad is the way to damnation. And then I said, let me give you the long answer, which was like three paragraphs. So I'm not going to give you it right now. But the, the explanation of it comes from that God judges the heart. Romans chapter 2. I think if you were here over this, earlier this year, we had talked about God has given each man a conscience. And he will judge the secrets of the heart. Then it's like, to what scale is, are we judged by? What, who, whose goodness are we compared to? Well, we are compared to the goodness of Christ. So if you're as good as Christ, then you're good. If you're not as good as Christ, well then... Right? So then it becomes that modality of, even to what we're talking about tonight, of the authority of Christ. So it's the willingness to not just hear and believe, but it's the willingness to hear and to do. And this is what I want to challenge us all on, is 
being under the authority of Christ is not just hearing. And so the, the Greek word here for hear or hears is akoi, A-K-O-U-E-I. It literally means to listen with comprehension. It, it's, anyone got children? Who's got children? Should raise your hand. Okay. It, have you ever tried to talk to them while they're watching television? Yes, exactly. So they hear you, but they are not comprehending, correct? What? The point is that God's word must be communicated in a way that people can understand. But then it has to be put into practice. And that's what the Greek word for does here. The, the, I think I looked it up. I believe that the verb here is P-O-I-E-I, poi-e. Uh, it's used like 970 times in the entire New Testament. It, it's often translated to do but it's translated to make or to practice. So literally what Jesus is saying for every person who hears and comprehends and puts into practice is like a wise man. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Psalms 1. This might be my favorite psalm in all the Bible. I absolutely love, 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 love this psalm. So if you want a better definition of a wise man, Here you go, Psalms 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So this blessed man, so blessed meaning happy, but it's more of the divine happiness. There's something that comes out of it, a fruitfulness that comes out of it that's in this man. So blessed is the man who does not walk who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. So the idea here, we are not to be monks. Let's start with that. that. Nowhere in the Bible are you told to run off to a monastery and live all by yourself so that you cannot sin. That's not a biblical commandment anywhere. The commandment is to go ye therefore into all the world and make disciples. So we are called to go out into the world, but we cannot be of the world. And this is, the best definition I got is a person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Now, you can be friends with people who are wicked, but you are not taking advice from someone who is wicked. Therefore, you're not walking in their ways, nor stands in the way of sinners, meaning you, you are not standing in a place. You're not in that, that realm that's going to bring you in temptation or to sin and does not sit with scoffers. And we live in a very bitter age. If any of you have been on social media in the last 48 hours, you just get a windstorm of just people and their opinions and their hatred and their bigotry and their just intolerance on both sides. It's just incredible what's being said But that's what a scoffer does, is they reject the truth and make fun of what is right and what is good. But he, or his delight, is in the law of the Lord. Right? So what is the law of the Lord? This book, the Bible. And now as Paul, as as David is writing this, he's not thinking of the whole Old and New Testament. He's considering the Torah, but the the, the law is his delight. Does anyone have a friend who's a state trooper? 
one person, two people, okay, a few people, right? Now, now we would like love to have a friend who's in law enforcement because when we're in that pickle, we want someone to call. But when we're cruising the interstate and our foot's heavy, we don't want Mr. Trooper driving behind us, right? That exercise of the law is not of delight. It's of it's that watchful eye, that big brother who's waiting to strike us and condemn us, right? That's just how I feel. I feel like those guys really, they're just, they're just ready. I've, I've, I've rode with one, and he's talking about how, how their, their, their squad cars, how fast you have to accelerate from the median to merge into traffic, and you could be merging into traffic at 80 miles an hour from like a dead stop to go. Yeah, no, thank you. But... This delight, I, I want you to think of it this way. Um, I know our weather's been weird, so you can't rely on what the weather's been. But think of, we had a cold day at some point in recent past couple weeks, right? There was at one point, it was like in the 50s, I think, right? It, did anyone, were, were, were any of you able to go see the sunshine or feel the sunshine while it was cold out? Okay. That's delight. Right, so so it's the idea of, I think of it this way: is the it's a cold day where you want to bundle up and you find that ray of sunshine and it just warms you. It, it brings it brings joy and contentment to your mind and your soul. This is what the law of the Lord should do for us. So when we read the scriptures, as we learn God's word, it should warm us from the inside like that sunshine does on a cold day. And then on the law, he meditates day and night. And this is what happens, verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. It yields its fruits in its season, and its leaves do not wither. In all he does, he prospers. There's a blessing from being obedient to God. There's a blessing that comes from being planted with God. The, The streams of living water literally means flowing water, living water, water that does not run dry. And in its season... I think that's important. I think some of us think that we always have to be in a fruit-bearing season. That's not true. There are times in our lives where we need to sit and rest and receive and be restored, and there's seasons to go and bear fruit. And there's seasons to rest, and there's seasons to go and bear fruit. And then all he does, he prospers. Okay, back to Matthew. A wise man who built his house on the rock. And as we all know, or should come to know, is that Jesus is the rock. Or is your life founded, planted in Jesus? Now, building in Florida is probably not much different than building in Israel. There's a lot of sand. Sand is not a very good foundation material to build anything on. That's why we have a sinkhole problem in the state of Florida, is we build houses where houses don't belong. We try to drain swamps and build houses, and the next thing you know, houses are getting swallowed up by the ground because there was no foundation truly under the house. Now, 5, 10, 20 feet, sure, but 100 feet down, there's nothing but a gaping hole. And so in Israel, when someone would build a house, the right thing to do would be to dig a footer till you hit bedrock, and that is what you begin to establish your house upon, not the surface. 
You did not just plant your house going, oh, this looks good. I got a nice view of the beach. There's a nice breeze coming off the ocean. This works. Anyone remember Hurricane Michael hitting the panhandle last year? Or Hurricane Doreen that hit the Bahamas? Right? Some of the houses, in my mind, I remember a picture of one of these houses that survived Hurricane Michael hitting the panhandle. And it had just been finished. But one of the things that the homeowner got interviewed and he said, the pylons that are holding up my house go 30 feet underground until they hit bedrock. And that's the reason why his house stood and all the others were just knocked over because the way the house was built was designed to last. Why does Jesus tell us this? Verse 25. The rain here is not a light sprinkle. This is not a summer mist. This is a torrential downpour. This is a thunderstorm word. Broche, B-R-O-C-H-E. That's the Greek word. It means literally means heavy rain. And then, so the rains fell, the floods came. Floods here are not quite, uh, it's not tidal surge flooding, but it is river surge. It's a tumult is the word, uh, but patim is the Greek word, P-O-T-A-M-I. But it literally means rising river waters. Anyone remember when the Mississippi flooded in Kansas and killed the million cows? That's the kind of flooding. About two years ago, there was heavy rains in the Midwest. And it was either the Mississippi or the Missouri. It literally flooded the, all this farmland and, and killed a mil, they said they killed like a million cows. That's the kind of flood that Jesus is talking about. This is a huge surge of the river, which ultimately lends, leads into the winds that blew. The, 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 the wind itself is uh, that of a strong storm, storm-like. But I found the word beat to be interesting. It's prospito. I don't, I'm not saying it right. P-R-O-S-P-I-P-T-O. Prospito. It literally means to be slammed to the ground. So like WWE, you know, body, body wrestlers, body slamming someone to the ground. That's the concept of wind that Jesus is talking about. This is not just a breeze. This is a body slam kind of. Actually, we even get this word prostrate from this Greek word to lay flat on the ground, but it's being pushed. Jesus does not promise us an easy life. And knowing many of the people in this room personally, I know that you have not had an easy life following Jesus. And I think, and this isn't a discouragement from following Jesus, but it's knowing that in Jesus you are able to get through the storm. Think of the psalmist in Psalms 23, verse 4. Yea, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I fear no evil, for thou art with me. Jesus didn't pull him out of the valley. He was walking him through the valley. There's a couple of scriptures. If you want to turn to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. I believe it's starting at verse 35. There's, Jesus has fed the 5,000. So that's verse 30 through 44. And then in verse 45, I was off a couple. So in Mark chapter 6, verse 30 through 44 is the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. Now Jesus sees the need of the crowd and he's ministering to them. And he says, guys, get in the boat 
and head across. And that's where we pick up in verse 45. Immediately, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethesda, while he dismissed the crowd. And then after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening had come, the boat was out at sea in a long way, and it was long, he was alone on land. Verse 48, And he saw them, and they were making painful headway painfully, for the winds was against them, and it was about the fourth watch of the night. He came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass them by, but when he saw them walking on the water, on, or on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and he cried out, they cried out, for they saw him and were terrified. And immediately he spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. When I was actually studying the word wind, this passage came up, and it said that many times following Jesus will lead you into a storm. That, that Jesus ordered the disciples into the boat to go across the sea and every scholar believes that Jesus was fully aware of the storm that was coming but he sent them anyways it was not it was it was now that's where they begin to disagree is what was the test that Jesus was putting them to but ultimately Jesus was with them he said take heart and this reminds me of another story if you want to flip back a page to Mark chapter 4, maybe two pages, verse 35. So on that day, evening had come, and he said to him, let us cross to the other side. I don't know if I'd ride in a boat with Jesus. I'm just, just saying. Leaving the crowd, they took him in the boat, just as he was, and the other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. And he was in the stern asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the winds and the seas and said, Peace, be still. And a great wind, and the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? How you still have no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to another, who then is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? There's not a lot of time that transpasses between Mark 4 and Mark 6, probably months. And, and Jesus is trying to get them to grow in faith and know who he is because he is the one who can calm the storms. I think sometimes we, we can be like the disciples in verse 38 and say, Teacher, don't you care? God don't, don't, God, don't you see the mess that I'm in? God, don't you see the storm of my life and what's going on? Don't you care? And the truth is he does. And the truth is he is. And at the right time, he will say, peace be still. And, and that is how our faith grows, is that willingness to be reliant upon him. Back to Matthew 7. So what about the other group? Everyone who hears but does not do. So it's like your children who we tell them to clean their room and they say, yes, I'll do it. And then they don't do it. They're being disobedient. 
And unfortunately, because they do not heed the words, when the rains come, the floods, when the rains fall and the floods come, the winds blow, their house, their life falls apart because it was built upon the sand. And so here's the, the challenge for us is maybe you or maybe someone you know has some shaky theology. Maybe someone you know has, maybe they just believe in themselves. I just, I'm a good person. I believe in myself. I can do it with hopes that they can actually survive the storm on their own. As I said in Romans 10, faith comes from hearing, but it's not just about hearing on its own. In James chapter 2, verse 17, it says, faith without works is dead. I will show, you say you have faith and I say you, I have works. You show, and I will show you my faith by my works. This is the do that we are, are called to do. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commands. There's very little of the Christian life that is a walk, merry-go-round really. Some kind of little ride that we just go around. So number one, we are compelled by the love of Christ to be obedient. So this is where Christ's authority and our personal responsibility comes together. Where, where we, out of love, if you missed last week, I talked about obedience without faith or love is legalism. Where you're just a rule follower. The, the Pharisees were far from God, but they kept all the rules. They were just as bad as the, the prostitutes and the tax collectors. But many of the people who followed Jesus came to know and follow the law because the love they had for him. In Luke 14, Jesus tells us that following him will cost you something, if not everything. Luke 14, starting in verse 25, it says, And a great crowd accompanied him, and he returned to them. He says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father or mother, wife, and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not sit down first and to count the cost, whether it is he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will mock him, saying, This man began to build... And was not able to finish. Or what king going to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and to deliberate uh, whether he was able with 10,000 to meet him who came against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet great way off, sent delegations and asked for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who desire to renounce does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Following Jesus will cost you something. Now, there's a great blessing that comes in following Jesus. So it's self bad news with a smile. It's better received. And this is not... Paul compels us that in 1 Corinthians 13, it says, If I give all I have away to the poor, but have not love, I'm nothing but a clanging gong and a noisy simple. This isn't about just selling it all. 
and becoming a, a, a transient gypsy who just, you know, tells everyone about Jesus and has nothing and becomes a beggar themselves. No, this is, this is about placement. Where in your life is God? Is God greater than your bank account? Greater than your house? Greater than your kids? Greater than your spouse? Greater than your health? Or do you tend to put other things in priority over God, thus committing adultery, idolatry? This is a great question I love to ask. Is your faith in God greater than your discontentment? Is your faith in God greater than your discontentment? We all will face troubles. I do a lot of pastoral counseling, I do a lot of relationship counseling, and I sit with a spouse and I say, is your faith in God greater than your discontentment with your spouse? Sometimes I get yes, but often I get a no. They they don't see how God can fix the relationship. They don't see that God can fix their own heart. They can't see how God can repair their trust or, or mend their broken heart. But because things become so uncomfortable and we become so discontent with what's going on, we find ourselves lacking the faith to believe that God will move in that situation, just as we read in Mark 4 and 6, as the disciples were in the storm. Right, because had their faith been greater, they themselves could have spoken to the winds and the waves and said, peace, be still. But instead, they chose to panic. So are you willing to really recognize God as God or not? Lastly, we must think as Christ is king. This isn't a direct reference to Jesus, but I, I love this story and I will... <sighs> Daniel chapter 3. I didn't think I was going to cry. I'm going to try not to because I'm ugly when I cry. I can't talk. I'm not always ugly. I'm just ugly when I cry. I had some very dear friends of mine a couple years ago. Um, They were pregnant. They were at 38 weeks. And the baby was stillborn. They had to give birth. I was there at the hospital. I helped them make the funeral arrangements officiated the funeral I walked with them after and this is what they put on their son's tombstone Daniel 3 actually 17 but I'm going to read 16, 17 and 18 Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego answered and said to the king O Nebuchadnezzar we have no need to answer you in this matter and Nebuchadnezzar had set up a statue and told everyone would have to bow down and worship it says, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hands, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They put the scripture reference and they wrote the inscription says, and if not, God is still good. And that's what got them 
through that season of life. Now to have a third child who's absolutely gorgeous. I know so they have a son and daughter and we talk from time to time about it and, and they're healing and they're growing but they know that even, even when they felt something shift when the baby stopped moving that God would be able to, the moment the child would be born that it could come back that life would be restored but they chose in that moment that regardless of what happened that God was still good and they were going to continue to serve and worship Him. And that's my encouragement to each of you. Is in this season, whether it's a blessed season, and everything's great and everything's wonderful and you're growing and you're, everything just seems to be clicking or you're in a, in a storm, will you allow your hearts to acknowledge that there's only one God to serve? And whether he delivers you from the furnace or not, is God still good? Is Christ still your king? If your answer is yes, which I hope it is, will you share that hope with someone else? There's, the people that I've talked to over the last few days are, are on the border of true hopelessness. There's nothing left holding them to life. Because everything has gone so wrong. But just as my friend said, I, I can share that story with joy because God is good. And they held on to Him and His grace. And that was their hope. And, and just recently he officiated a, a funeral for a young lady at the place he works. And he shared his own testimony of Daniel chapter 3 and his son who died. And and the hope that they found in Christ. And I believe and I know that we in this room have found hope in Christ. And that is what gets us through the day. And in this Christmas season, I pray that you share that hope with others. And that concludes the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Let us pray. Dearly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time together. Lord, let us be hearers of your word and put them into practice. Help us comprehend that what you've shared with us so that when we face storms and trials and hardships, we can say, peace, be still. That we can speak to the darkness and proclaim the light of the world. That we can tell death it has no place here. That sin has no more bondage on our lives. But we are filled with the Holy Ghost. Blessed by the Spirit of God to know the truth and be set free. That we might be full of joy and love and hope. Thank you for my friends. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for this opportunity to teach your word, to grow in faith and understanding. Lord, in this season, let us rest. Let us celebrate as we usher in a new year and the birth of our Savior. And when we meet again, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.